Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Heidi Heitkamp represented the great state of North Dakota in the Senate for just one term until she was voted out in 2018, thanks to her vote against Justice Kavanaugh. Now she started a group called One Country, which seeks to put the issues of rural voters on the agenda in 2020. I sat with Heitkamp at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June, and we talked about a lot of things, including One Country, the impact of Trump's trade wars on farmers, and the 2020 Democratic presidential field. Hear it all right now. Senator Heidi Heidkamp, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So you were the U.S. Senator from the great state of North Dakota from 2012 to 2018, right? Mm-hmm. And you lost your reelection That's in, in the 2018 midterms. What were the factors that led to your no longer being in the Senate? Well, I think it was a number of things. I, the first thing I would tell you is that the state has become much more identified with the Republican Party. So if you looked at my polling in 2012 for that election, we had a disadvantage as being Democrats did. But if you looked at comparables between a party identification 2012 and 2018, there were 12 percent more people in North Dakota who identified as Republican. Now, that wouldn't be insurmountable, except the trend in North Dakota has always been people will split their ballot. They will vote for a Democrat, they'll vote for a Republican, even if they're identified as Democrats or they're identified as Republicans, they tend to at least consider the other candidate. In the same vein as the rest of America, the party identification has hardened to the point that people won't even consider voting for someone of the other party. And so I would get responses um, when I was out and about saying, we like you, we think you did a terrific job as a senator, but you're part of the mob meaning I was a member of the Democratic Party, and they would not vote for a Democrat. And I think it made it that much tougher. We did very well in the eastern part of the state, which is where I'm from, the Red River Valley, which is right up against Minnesota, which tends to be more progressive. It tends to be more Norwegian, mm-hmm, um, not mm-hmm. as much German. And you understand this because you've spent time with me. Yes, my in husband's North from North Dakota. Dakota. And right. full disclosure, my husband's family and your family have known each other for a l- very Forever. long time. Yes, His grandfather and, and your my father, father were best pals. Right. And that means they drank a few beers together in the days when you say they were best pals in North Dakota. (laughs) But so the demographics were good for us in eastern North Dakota and not so good in western. Um, Another demographic trend was the influx of people from very conservative parts of the country to North Dakota to work in the oil fields. Uh And so you had a lot of people from Louisiana, a lot of people from the Deep South. You had people from Idaho. You had people from Utah, Oklahoma moving up who had a different political tradition than the traditional, more independent, populist tradition of North Dakota. I also would say this. Donald Trump won North Dakota with 36 points. When I ran in 12, I was running on the ticket with Barack Obama, with President Obama, and we knew that if his spread, if he was going to lose by more than 22 points, I couldn't win. Hmm. On election day, he lost by 22 points, and I eked out a 3,000-vote majority. Donald Trump had a 36% favorable result in North Dakota, fourth highest in the country, just right behind Oklahoma. And the 
headwinds were pretty stiff all along. And so when you look at it, Donald Trump did better in North Dakota than he did in Alabama. So just so people get an idea of how tough that was Mm -hmm. to buck that trend. And, you know, I assumed, because I think it was the only thing I could do politically, but I also thought I understood that people in North Dakota wanted somebody who would vote with the president when he was right and vote against the president when they thought he was wrong. My opponent said he would be with them 100% of the time, and he won. I think the question I get the most often is, what role did the Kavanaugh vote play in? I was going to ask you about that. I See, I do. You know, I'm like every other bossy German woman. (laughs) I ask the question, then I answer it. Well, let me ask you about that, because (laughs) you were up for re-election. The Kavanaugh vote, everyone was talking about how huge that was, what a bind that put Democrats running in red states for re-election for the Senate, the bind that put them in. And when you announced that you were voting no on Kavanaugh, it came as a shock because there were many people who were prepared for you to say, oh, yes, I'm voting for him and view it as a totally political thing. Why did you decide, clearly with your seat at risk, that it was important for you to vote no on Kavanaugh? I think that one of the most important roles of a sitting United States senator is to advise and consent on the Supreme Court. There are no do-overs. This is a vote that will be relevant to people in 30 years. And so it's not like you're voting on a piece of legislation where you say, well, let's roll the dice. And if it works, that's great. If it doesn't, we can always fix it. You can't fix a Supreme Court nomination. I was prepared to vote for Justice Kavanaugh, believed that at least academically he was qualified for the court and by experience on the D.C. Circuit Court. After the announcement of the second round of hearings to hear Dr. Ford's testimony, you know, I thought, okay, we're going to watch this and we're going to watch it really closely. And I, first off, have to tell you, I believed her. I had, as North Dakota's attorney general, had done a lot of work with victims of sexual assault, had spent a lot of time telling people why we couldn't prosecute cases because there wasn't enough evidence, even cases where you believed someone. And so had done a lot of that kind of work in the past. And so I believed her. And I'm not sure, you know, full disclosure, that just believing her would have been enough. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see how he would handle. And that's when the wheels came off the bus for me. I thought his entire demeanor was contrary to what I would expect on the Supreme Court. I thought that he reminded me of very many perpetrators who, in fact have that kind of bravada, that false sense of I'm the victim here. And that was off-putting. But the moment where I knew that I really couldn't do this or that it likely was going to be a no was um, during the questioning with Senator Klobuchar. Mm. I thought that was just a key moment. Then they announced further investigation. I thought, okay, well, let's see what comes up. You have to have the record complete. And then nothing in there changed my mind from a no vote. But I was headed to a yes vote until that hearing. So now you're back in the state. You're campaigning for your reelection. What kind of grief did you get from constituents as a result of that vote? In North Dakota, people think we want a conservative court. And I think a lot of people throughout the country look at that as a pro-business court, right, or an anti-regulation court. In North Dakota, it's really a void about choice. It's really a vote about abortion. And it brought that issue front row and center. But it also said, look, you have now been trying to tell us for all these months in your paid advertising and when you visit that you're independent and you went right straight party line on this vote. And I think that was survivable, except for the sense 
of how this whole thing happened. And I blame both sides. I blame both the Democratic leadership on the Judiciary Committee and the Republican leadership on the Judiciary Committee. They let that committee turn into something. It it did not look like the most significant deliberative body in America. And I think people watched that. And depending upon their political affiliation, they saw completely different things. And I will tell you the impact that that process had, where people in North Dakota, many people talked to me about this with all of the protesters coming to town and women telling their stories, what they saw was a mob. They saw these angry people. And what I saw was the result of untreated trauma. I saw how prevalent and misunderstood sexual assault is in this country. And that if you, in fact, ignore this and vote to approve this process and approve, not listen to these women that we'll have taken a step backwards. So for me, it really went back to the work that I'd done with sexual assault victims and the importance of sending a message that people engaged in that behavior have a level of accountability that they haven't in the past. And some of the most amazing stories I think that came out were men who had been perpetrators in college reaching out to women who they had assaulted and asking their forgiveness. You know, it's interesting. Grand Forks, North Dakota, a couple years ago, this very clever teacher was doing some work on how to kind of put together a multimedia campaign, persuasion campaign. There were four teams, I think, and one of the teams was a team of seniors in high school who talked about the rape culture in their high school. And they had high school athletes doing videos saying it's not right. And you realize when you do this work how prevalent sexual assault is and that there needs to be a different norm. Can you explain to me why President Trump is so popular in North Dakota? And fine, it's a conservative state, conservatives moving up from, you said, Louisiana and from the South and from Utah and other conservative states. And I'm old enough to remember when conservatives were grounded in morality and didn't like a whole lot of people because they didn't meet their definitions of moral upstanding. And yet here we have this guy who doesn't meet any of those criteria. And then on top of it, you have the president's trade fights and tariffs that are hurting people, at least correct me if I'm wrong, hurting people in North Dakota. And yet he's still popular. Why? I think at a time of any kind of social change, and we have huge demographic changes coming at us, I think there's always a period of insecurity. And people who make a call for looking back and not looking forward, people who say, I'm going to bring you back to an easier time, that's very attractive. I think that the Obama administration was not as aggressive in talking about the things that they were doing in rural America. And I will tell you, Tom Vilsack was a great secretary of agriculture. He did great things. He understood agriculture. But I think having a secretary understand is not the same as the president talking about it. Here's a great example. We had a huge and devastating flood in Minot. What would have happened had President Obama actually come to Minot? I mean, it was devastating. A third of the town was underwater. And these were not rich people who lived on the river. This was the old culture of the poor people lived on the river. These were bank tellers and janitors. And and it really would have sent a message that you matter. And I think that they just believed that the Democratic Party culturally had moved away from them. They also, I think, felt under siege with regulation that didn't make a lot of sense to them. Like, why are we doing this? And I think in farm country in particular, Waters of the United States was 
a huge kind of rallying cry. And so they didn't see democratic politics. The other thing the Republicans have been very clever about in farm policy is they've moved from freedom to farm and libertarian ideas on farm policy. And they now have co-opted kind of the democratic ideas that you have to provide this safety net. And so what the president's done in response to trade is put more money in the kitty saying, I'll take care of you. I think people in rural America are smart enough to realize it's not just about agriculture. It's about what's happening at the rural hospital. What's happening? Is my kid getting the same quality education at the school? Do I feel like I have the same level of public safety? I mean, I could tell you stories about being literally 50 miles away from a sheriff's response. And so when Mm. people say, I don't understand this kind of culture, I want to say, well, think about dialing 911 and being almost an hour away from help coming. And so I think there's different issues. Now, the point that I make with so many people is you can have rural attitudes, but I will tell you what's not a rural value. Lying, bragging, prevaricating, being a hypocrite. Those are not rural values. And I don't think that we've talked enough about things like corruption, things like the lies that are small but significant because they're small. I mean, we talk about the big lies, but why lie about the small stuff? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a restlessness in rural America about their future. And the president was able to tap into it saying, I'm going to bring better times back to you. And just in the things that you were just saying, that is a great segue into what you're doing now. You made me remember this when you were talking about the rural hospital. Talk about one country. It is one country, right? Not one nation. One, One country. What is one country? And what are you trying to do with one country vis-a-vis the Democratic Party? I think over the last eight years, I have really looked at the kind of demographic political changes in rural America. And people may say, well, there aren't a lot of people out there, so why care? Well, if Donald Trump hadn't been able to win with the percentages that he won in rural Michigan and rural Wisconsin and rural Pennsylvania, he would not be president. And these are people who also voted for Obama. I mean, these are Obama-Trump voters in rural America. And so in 16, I actually talked to the Clinton campaign and said, you have got to do better in rural America and gave them some suggestions. I think they got a little unnerved by what was happening with Bernie Sanders, was afraid to talk about kind of deregulation, you know, having rational regulation, afraid to talk about her values which are very Christian, which is also really important in rural America. And and I think they played the numbers game and calculated that if they only did so much better in suburbia, that they could win. Guess what? If we did 1% better on the electoral vote than Obama did in 12, we would still lose the electoral mm-hmm. college. Because what has happened is those votes are in blue, blue states that drive up the popular vote. But you've got, you know, people say, well, then change the Electoral College. Well, that's easier said than done. You know, when the Electoral College was created, there were large states and small states, and it was a great compromise, right? And so I'm saying, you might not like the designated hitter rule, but learn how to play the game using that rule because it's the one you got. That's a and, sports analogy. Yeah, I have I'm no sorry. idea what you're talking about, <laughs> but I know it's not. I, 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 intuitively, I get what you mean. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the National League doesn't use it. The American League does. Okay. Anyway, and, <laughs> but my whole point is, so what can I do? How can I contribute? And I don't see this just as helping the Democratic Party or Democratic candidates. I see this as making sure that rural America isn't left behind. And you might say, why? Let's take, for instance, the coal industry. The coal industry decided a long time ago that they were only going to 
respond to Republicans. In fact, the West Virginia Coal Association didn't endorse Joe Manchin, if you can imagine. Hmm. And so they now are a arm of the Republican Party. What happens when the Republican Party is no longer in power? Who's going to really care about the coal industry and the coal jobs? And so what I'm saying is that for, and I wouldn't call it special interest, but for places in this country, it's not good for them to be 100% with one political party or the other. And that's why I called it one country. But the other reason why I called this effort, which is a C4 kind of political analysis in rural America, which we post and we've done some great work already. You can go see it at onecountryproject.com. So the one thing that I would say we have done is really elevated people's interest in rural issues in the Democratic Party and their understanding of why talking about rural hospitals. So everybody's like, what about affordability? What about your prescription drug costs? And these are all critical and people care about them in rural America. You know what people really care about? They're 70 miles away from a doctor. I mean, think about that. They care that doctors won't work in their community, in their local hospital. They care about access to health care in ways that I think not a lot of people can really mm -hmm. understand. Same thing is true for education and quality teachers and quality housing in rural America. But at the base, one country, because what the cab driver in New York cares about, which is getting his family a good education, putting food on the table that's nutritious and safe, making sure that they have access to health care and retirement. All of those things that are what I would call microeconomic issues, they're the same in rural America. But delivery of results is different. You know, when you talked about this recently at the Third Way Conference in Charleston, the thing that jumped out at me was as you were giving this impassioned pitch for <laughs> why America should care about rural America, you used the word when talking about the president and his policies, reckless. And it stuck with me because reckless is a word that no matter what issue is your issue, no matter what constituency you belong to and you are impacted by the president, that word says something to you. Rural America could view him as reckless. Urban America could view him as reckless. Women fill in the blank. What are some of the ways that the president is reckless in rural America? Well, let's start with trade. And full disclosure, I'm probably the most pro-trade Democrat you're ever going to find because I start every speech to every high school group in North Dakota, which tends to be more isolationist. I hold up my hand and I say, if you remember nothing else, remember the number five. And they kind of look at me like, what's that got to do with anything? I said, the United States of America is less than 5% of global population. And when you're my age, you'll be less than three. So if you aren't engaging globally, then you aren't going to be successful. And so understand that you may want to just move money around in this country, but new wealth comes from exports. It comes from exchange of ideas. It comes from doing the things that we need to do to grow our economy and continue to be dominant. And what he's doing right now is reckless. The first reckless act was pulling out a TPP with Trans-Pacific totally Partnership agree. without even attempting to renegotiate. It is his unilateralism, which we talked a lot about in Harvard. I mean, it's a major theme that I have. You cannot lead a party of one. The United States has always been a global leader, certainly since World War II. 
we want to continue to be a global leader. That doesn't mean just taking care of yourself. It means taking care of democracies across the world, leading the world to better conditions for everyone, which will lead to better economics in this country. You know, the example I gave at Harvard was take a look at national security threats, and people here are going to talk about Russia and China, and that is all legitimate. Pandemics. Think about satellite warfare. Think about cyber warfare, which, as my friend Gary Cohen says, give me a keyboard over an aircraft carrier, <laughs> and I can do more damage. In fact, the Chinese army has a whole section that does nothing but cyber. And some of the highest rewards in the Chinese army go to people who understand how to engage in cyber warfare. You can't handle any of those unilaterally. I mean, the United States has to lead globally. And how we lead is we lead in multilateral trade agreements. And so one thing that farmers in North Dakota know and remember is that when our friend uh, Jimmy Carter imposed grain embargo, they never got the soybean market back. I mean, he can say, I'm cutting a deal with China. China's agreed to buy all these soybeans. China's agreed to deals before. And so we all need to be a little cynical and skeptical. But we also need to understand that how we engage with China is not ever going to be as powerful as when we engage together with our trading allies and with our democratic allies across the world. And that was the chance at the TPP. Mm -hmm. And also, the other thing about TPP is that it wasn't just a trade agreement. It was a geopolitical pact to block China. Yeah. And it's interesting because when I make this argument to my friends in the Republican Party, they go, but your party wasn't for it. I said, but our, my party's never been reliably. Anyone who tells you that the GOP is the free trade party, they're lying. They're the Donald Trump party. And so they're the party of tariffs, i.e. taxes on the American public, and they're the party of unilateral engagement. But the other way he's reckless is what he's doing with the Affordable Care Act. If you look at across the board, and I think Krugman had an article about this, a recent editorial in the New York Times on this, and, and he basically said, look at all those states that expanded Medicaid. North Dakota included. They've been able to, in much higher numbers, hang on to their rural hospitals. The president is trying to unilaterally dismember the Affordable Care Act, take away your protections on pre-existing conditions, take away your kids on your health insurance, bring back the cap at a million dollars. So health care is a huge issue in rural America, and he's reckless with people's health care. And so I think you can point to any number of things like his budget, where he dramatically cuts the rural electrification program, where he cuts broadband. So the lifeline that we hope we will receive, which is the ability to attract tech employment, work away from home, the new artificial intelligence work that can be done that can expand opportunities to rural America. If we educate kids for those opportunities, he's not building the infrastructure to do that. So twice now you mentioned Harvard, and once you mentioned Gary Cohen. You are a fellow at the Harvard Institute yeah. of Politics, and your buddy was Gary Cohen. He was the chair of the National Council of Economic Advisors under President Trump. Yeah. What? Well, yeah. I mean, Gary and I knew each other. I was on put on the banking committee. And so, of course, you know, there's the get to know who's all on the banking committee mm -hmm. uh, kind of visits. And so... 
but we had our first run in over aluminum, which is a long story, and Gary disputes <laughs> what actually went on. But we got to be pretty good friends, kind of where's our area of common ground. And so when he was named to the Council of Economic Advisors, I was really excited when he became the president's chief economic advisor, because I thought this is someone I can work with. And I remember calling him up and saying, okay, and it's this isn't popular among progressives, but we did the amendments to Dodd-Frank that I think, again, talk about rural America, that were critical to keeping the banking industry in rural America. I said, look, you know, you got to work with me. And I really credit him with making sure that the host didn't mess it up. When Harvard invited both of us to be fellows, we didn't want to live there. And so we (laughs) said, well, let's do it together. And we did a program that we called the Real State of the Union, where we talked about economic issues and demographic issues that are going to challenge America going forward. And we talked about debt and deficit. I think healthcare is one of the greatest challenges, affordability of healthcare. As we look at the doubling of older, oldest in the near term, 20% of the people being over the age of 65. I mean, just look at demographic trends. They're frightening. And we know that the older you are, the more healthcare you use. And so the question is, what do we need to do about that? And so we talked about healthcare. We talked about Social Security. Had a great project with some Harvard kids on proposals to improve Social Security, make it solved for the next 75 years. We talked about national security, and it was interesting because I think it's really important for students in particular, young people in particular, to see two people who have mutual respect for each other sit down and actually have a debate about what they agree on and what they disagree on and how to move the country forward. Here's what I struggle with. I hear everything you're saying about Gary Cohen and and everything. And in, a, in an ideal world, you should be able to work with someone with whom you don't agree on most things, but find common ground. But the thing I struggle with is how do you work with an administration that is doing things that rock you to your core, morally, you know, what's happening on the border with children, the rhetoric coming out of the White House when it comes to race? Yeah. Because it's not about them. It's about your constituents. Mm -hmm. It's about whether that farmer and that farm wife and that farm family are going to have the security that they need to get up in the morning and spend a million dollars putting inputs in the ground. It's about that local community banker who no longer can do a home mortgage for one of his or her best clients. And that's how you do it. You don't think about, I'm doing this, he's the duly elected president of the United States. And so to the extent that you can agree with him, you absolutely need to work with him. Now, I very early on started questioning this administration about separating kids at the border. And you've seen the advertisements which show me questioning General Kelly and him making a commitment that the only reason they would ever separate kids is for their health and safety. If what's happening at the border with children right now, if that is what making America great again looks like, we all need to take a real pause. Because it seems to me that the thing that we really want to be doing is focusing on kids. So when this country focuses on children, innocence, innocence, and we put our energy and our reputations on the line to improve conditions for children and invest in children, we will be a strong country forever if that's our focus. And my greatest challenge is I don't see it. I don't see it in public policy. Here's a great example. And I'm not picking on anyone on student loans. I got asked about this. Well, would you do free college or would you do blah, 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 student loans? And I said, if I had those resources, I'd invest in daycare. I'd invest in paid family leave. I'd invest in the things where during brain development that really give every kid a chance. Because 
when a Native American child goes to school, it goes to school with just a small fraction of the vocabulary of the wealthiest, most prosperous family in America. We know vocabulary is a leading indicator of educational success. And so that child hasn't even been given a chance. Let's invest there and see what those results are. And just because kids don't vote doesn't mean that they shouldn't be our top priority. And for me, I think every day, the only time I will tell you honestly, I feel like I wish I were there is when I see what's happening at the border. And not because I'm, I'm against border security, I'm not. I've been probably one of the toughest people on border security because I've seen things at the border that should not be happening at our border. But you do not punish innocents for the lack of public policy and the failure of Central American countries to keep their people safe. We do not punish children in this country, but that's exactly who we're punishing. And that's not who we are. It is not who we are. It's not who a Republican is. It's not who a Democrat is. It shouldn't be who the president is and it shouldn't be who the Congress is. And yet, I'm trying to remember the writer who pointed this out, it seems as though the cruelty is the purpose here, to be cruel. But it's interesting because, and I'll take you back to the early days of this, and it was something that Kamala Harris and I did a lot of questioning on. This was before anyone really raised the issue of separating children at the border kind of globally. It was clear the punishment wasn't supposed to be for the kids. The punishment was for the parents for bringing their kids there. And I submitted to the record on Homeland Security letters that I had received from several organizations with mothers saying, it's either that or my child is going to die in that country. And so I will still come. The point is that it was supposed to be a deterrent against parents coming. It was never going to be a deterrent. Mm -hmm. It's not a deterrent today. Even this news, I doubt, is a deterrent because what they're leaving is so dangerous and what they're leaving is so depraved. If the election were held today, would Trump win? Yes. Why? Um, because the economy. People have bought into the economy as good. And so when you look at Trump's economic message, it's about three, the number three. Three percent unemployment, an unemployment number that begins with three. Economic growth that begins with three, which I don't think he's going to get and wage increases that begin with three. And so he's focused on his economic message on macroeconomic figures. Now, and he's saying, I'm the Svengali, I alone have done this. And I think when you look at Steve Ratner's charts, which are all fact-based, what you're going to see is there isn't much change in terms of economic growth or macro patterns since the Obama administration. So we've let him have that space, which we shouldn't have. Because he told us he's going to grow the economy 4 to 5%, right? Right. He also told us he's going to balance the budget and the tax bill will pay for itself. And we can go all through sorts all of, of that. All yeah, sorts of things. The big lies. <laughs> anyway, but we need to focus on the macroeconomic issues. Why is it that in, I think it was 2012, the Fed asked the question, can you afford a $400 or less expenditure without going to a payday lender or without, I mean, can you just buy a new set of tires if you need to? The answer was no. 40% of the people in this country could not afford a $400 hit. That number hasn't changed. Prescription drugs have gone through the roof for drugs that people bought forever. You know, my husband's a family physician, and he says, you know, it used to be insulin was cheap. Why is insulin expensive now? It's not different. But yet somehow the delivery mechanism has legitimized these costs increase. And so I think that we need to drill down where people live. 
has college become more affordable? The answer is no, it has not. And so do are people saving more for their retirement? Oh, no, they're not. And that is a huge economic challenge that we're going to experience, that when people retire who are in their 40s today, a huge percentage of them will only rely on Social Security because they won't have equity in a home and they won't have a defined benefit plan. So we need to start focusing on middle-class issues where people live. And we've got to get out of soundbite world. And we've got to offer solutions to problems that can actually get accomplished. Here's a great example. You're going to wipe out student debt? That is not going to pass, even if it was a good idea, which I don't think it is. You know what is a good idea? Writing down the interest rate or eliminating the interest rate. Give people the pride of actually paying for their education, Mm -hmm. but don't rip them off with a high interest rate. You know, what students would tell you is, I keep paying, but I'm not paying down principal. And compounding works both ways. If you save early, compounding works for you. If you have a lot of debt, compounding's your enemy. I think that there's moderate, and I know that's a bad word now, right? But there are moderate solutions to these problems that can help a great deal that will not completely upset the apple cart. That's true for climate. It's true for economic issues. It's true for trade issues. We could be doing a lot of things that we're not doing because we're too busy identifying the polar opposite. So I'm a little confused here. If, sure, on the macro level, things are great, the threes you were talking about, but then you just walk through several micro level issues that were on the ground. The president's saying everything's great, but then you get home and you've got a $500 expense that you didn't anticipate. You've got a rural hospital that is either closed or 70 miles away and all the other things you talked about. How is it possible, given that, given the lived reality, that you still think President Trump would win re-election? I think because people think that he sees them when no one else does. He respects them. He respects what they do. He respects what they've done for the country. And he's got this muscularity to how he talks. And, you know, we all know what his demographics are, right? He's speaking to his demographic. What what are those demographics? His demographic is male. I mean, we have a huge gender gap, and it's only potentially going to get bigger. And it's interesting because the president has really doubled down on courting his base. You saw his announcement. It really was his greatest hits. He's done nothing to expand I think that worries people in his own party. And you see it a little bit with the outreach in the African-American communities, you know, lowest unemployment rates, highest wage growth. You see it a little bit with, and one thing I will credit him and his administration is the small step that was taken on judicial reform. Mm -hmm. Of course, no money for reentry. So what do you think is going to happen in five years when people can't find a job and there isn't, nobody's willing to give them a hand up or a job because they're felons? And the whole system's rigged against him, including student loans. Mm. I have a real issue with doing criminal justice reform without systematic investments in reentry. I'll just lay that out in the line. (laughs) But I think that elections are about choices. And if this is a choice, Democrats win or lose because he's the best at campaigning on choice. By that, I mean not abortion choice, but, you know, me or this really horrible person who's a socialist That's the line, right? Right. Or this really horrible person who's sleepy, creepy, this really horrible person who doesn't really understand you and and looks down their nose, which would be kind of the Obama comparison, and or might be vegan, you know, just name whatever whatever he's (laughs) gonna yeah might be vegan. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder who that is. And so he's gonna make this about a choice. 
And that whoever runs needs to make it about a referendum, not just on issues like the middle class isn't getting stronger in this country, that we've lost leadership opportunities globally, but it also needs to be a referendum on his behavior. At the moment we are recording, there are 25 candidates for president on the Democratic side. Have you picked a person? No, are I you, would never do that. Are you going to pick a person? No. What I'm really interested in is watching kind of the, I won't call them performances, but the presentations. I say it's three. You got to have character. And right now, if it's choice between anyone's character of those 25 <laughs> and the character of the president, I think that's a fight we can win. It's got to be about competence, because I think the one thing that we don't talk enough about is competence. Michael Lewis wrote a great book. Have you read uh, this? No, oh, it's called The Five Elements or The Five Something, but it's scary. You should read it because it's all about the Trump transition team and what happened in very significant federal employment areas that really affect our health and safety mm. and how people who were there forever were treated. That's a competence issue. And so we need to make competence an issue and we need to make sure we're competent and qualified to sit in that chair. I think the third thing, and this is the tough one, because whether you like him or don't like him, you have to acknowledge he has a charisma. I, you know, someone once asked me if I thought the president was charming. No, I don't think the president's charming. I think he's charismatic. I don't think he could have gotten where he is without charisma. We have to have someone with a level of charisma that can occupy a stage and be at the same level as this president. And that is a tall order because I will give him props for marketing and charisma. Anyone come close in that number you know, three I area? I, I think you have to watch him. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that Elizabeth is surging. Elizabeth's a fairly charismatic person. And her charisma comes from her confidence, her competence, and her absolute surety that she's right. <laughs> <laughs> if only you could see the look on, on, on the senator's face as she said yeah, that. No, but I mean, you know, I, I always tell people, I fall in love with my ideas. I respect somebody else who does. It doesn't mean my ideas are always right. So I would say there's a reason why she has seen a surge in the polls. And she's not cautious. And I think one of the things that I would advise every member about is don't be cautious. This is not a time for caution. This isn't a time to parse your words. This is a time to say what you mean, which is what was attractive to many people about Donald Trump. You may not like what he says, but damn, you know what he's thinking. And that's the truth. You do. He's not thinking much, but he's talking a lot. <laughs> and well, I mean, you know, <laughs> the things wrong. that if you read it, you're like, what? But he's communicating, even though that's why people kind of react when people will say, well, his words are gobbledygook and make no sense. They hear it and they actually have an idea and a concept that's being communicated to them. And so they say, what do you mean it's not making sense? Just you snobs at the Washington Post who want him to, you know, not dangle his participles or whatever, <laughs> you know. And so it's interesting because I have the same problem. I don't read well on transcript. Mm -mm. Oh, yeah. But I think many times I'm, I'm a pretty good communicator. And so I think we need to be careful to not underestimate his ability to communicate. Heidi Heidkamp, former senator from the great state of North Dakota, now, what do you call you, founder? Um, <laughs> creator. Creator of yeah. One Country yeah. Project. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. This has been fun. 
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hopefully, this is the last time you hear this ad. With Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab an extra latte. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.